from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Last month, HBO premiered a new adaptation of Ray Bradbury's classic novel, Fahrenheit 451, starring Michael B. Jordan and Hollywood's current go-to evil G-man, Michael Shannon. The story takes place in a world where firemen go house to house to start fires, to burn books. Benjamin Franklin, the founder of our first fire department, gave us the right to burn. Those are lies. Ben Franklin did not do that. After the last of your generation dies, so will your words, your memories, and the burden of your fake past. Since the 2016 election, as fretting about free speech and authoritarianism reached a new pitch, Fahrenheit 451 has had a general revival along with other mid-century dystopian regime novels like 1984 and Animal Farm and Man in the High Castle. As part of our continuing series on American icons, Eric Malinsky looks at how a story written 65 years ago feels freshly relevant. Uh, yeah, can I hear levels again? Uh, this is me. This is me talking. This is me still talking. Peter Piper, pick the pick of pickle peppers. That is the voice of Neil Gaiman, master of modern fantasy. But he wasn't here to talk about the stories that he's best known for, like American Gods, Sandman, or Coraline. He wanted to talk about a book that made a huge impact on him as a child, Fahrenheit 451. And as a kid, he was particularly fascinated with the main character, he was a fireman. He burned down houses of people with books. And that seemed a cool science fictional idea in itself because I lived in a world in which firemen came and saved you and they put out fires. And I didn't really understand things like his marriage falling apart. Huge swatches of the plot I missed. But that's fine because when you're nine years old, you know that you're going to read the book later and you'll take from it what is there for you. The writer Alice Hoffman, who's best known for the novel Practical Magic, also discovered Fahrenheit 451 as a child. Now, at the time, her parents had just divorced, and one of the few things that her father left behind was a collection of books full of Ray Bradbury novels. You know, it was a time, really, when I needed a sort of a father figure or moral voice, and I feel like Ray is that, he was such a moral voice. There was such a center. There was, there was a sense of right and wrong in his books. You know, that's a good thing, especially when you're a young reader. But as a young reader, she eventually put the book away. And she didn't pick it up again until September of 2001. You know, I didn't believe in writer's block until I had it. I had it after 9-11 because I felt like there was no point in doing anything, but certainly no point in writing. I felt like books were going to burn up and, and there, was, there was just no point in going on. So I had this horrible writer's block and my inner child or my inner self told me to go back and read Fahrenheit 451. And when I read that book again, 
I realized how important books were. And I realized how important stories were. And I got, you know, I was able to write again. In Fahrenheit 451, each of the characters represents a challenge to the reader. If you lived in this dystopian world, what would you do? Who would you be? Rich Orlo has thought about that a lot. I do have the ability, you know, pat yourself on the back, blah, 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 you know, but to um, sort of morph myself into other characters. For the last decade, he's been performing a one-man show of Fahrenheit 451 using a script that was approved by Ray Bradbury before Bradbury died in 2012. Now, Rich does all the voices in the show, but the character he says he identifies with the most is Guy Montag, the main character, the fireman, who starts to question why he's burning books. You know, he goes from someone who, who is kind of destructive, he thinks he knows it all, he's kind of angry, but there's a core of in him that tells him that there's something more than this. And that's kind of how I was when I was young. I was kind of a, uh, not the happiest kid, that's for sure. I was very angry. I grew up in not the best circumstances per se. And, you know, I had a lot of wrong ways of seeing the world, thinking I knew it all too. And and then, you know, getting away from home and going to college and, and meeting people that were different that I thought I had all these judgments on, I was totally wrong. And he doesn't know anything. Eventually, at the end of the book, he says, I was an idiot the whole way. I can identify with that, you know. So here's Rich performing a scene where Montag reveals for the first time to his wife, Millie, that he's unhappy with his work. When I wake up, I have chills and a fever. Oh, you can't be sick. You were all right last night. Millie, do you know what happened last night? We burned a thousand books. We burnt a woman. Well? Well? Well, you should have seen her, Millie. God, there's got to be things in books. Things that you can't imagine to make a woman stay in a burning house. You wouldn't stay for nothing. She was as rational as you and I, and we burnt her. Have you ever seen a burning house? It smolders for days. I've been trying to put it out in my mind. I'm crazy with trying, and I'm sick. And it's not just the woman that died. I'm, th- I'm thinking about all the kerosene that I have used in the past ten years. And I am thinking about those books. And for the first time, I realized that there was a a man behind each one of those books. A man had to think them up. A man had to put them down on paper. It may have taken some man a lifetime to put his thoughts down on paper, and then along I come in two minutes and boom, it's all over. Oh, leave me alone. I didn't do anything to you. Wow, that was chilling. (laughs) Thank you. So, wow, it's it's so interesting to hear Millie. When I think of Millie, I mean, Millie is... She self-medicates. I mean, the whole the whole book, she's half out of it. Her character never really confronts the really underlying cause of all these things. She distracts herself with television, and, and that's her life. She even calls them her TV family. Now, the opposite of Millie, who just kind of goes along with the program, is Montag's next-door neighbor, Clarice McClellan. She only appears in the beginning of the book, but she plays a pivotal role. She awakens Montag's conscience. You know, I'm not afraid of you at all. So many people are, they're afraid of firemen, but you are just a man after all. How long have you worked at being a fireman? Since I was 20, 10 years ago. Do you ever read any of the books that you burn? No, that's against the law. Oh yes, of course. Hey, it's fine work. Monday you burn Edna Millay, 
Wednesday, Walt Whitman, Friday, Faulkner. You burn them to ashes, and then you burn the ashes. That's our official slogan. Is it true that a long time ago, firemen used to put out fires instead of going to start them? No. That's strange, because I heard that houses used to burn by accident, and they needed firemen to stop the flames. Now, the fourth major character in the book is Montag's boss, the anti-intellectual Captain Beatty. We must all be alike. Not everybody born free and equal like the Constitution says, but everybody made equal. Each man the image of every other. For then, all are happy. For there are no mountains to judge yourself against or to make you cower. So, a book is a loaded weapon in the house next door. Burn it. Burn it! Who knows who may be the target of a well-read man? Now that is actually a very important moment, because Beattie reveals something to Montag which may be surprising to some readers. It was actually surprising to me the first time I read the book. This whole book-burning business did not come from the government, at least not at first. It came from the people. Every book contained something that somebody found offensive. So firemen began burning the most offensive books, the people cheered, and they kept going. When the houses were finally fireproofed completely, there was no longer a need of firemen for the old purposes. They were given a new job. As the custodians of our peace of mind, the focus of our rightful dread of being inferior, official censors, judges, and executioners, that is you, Montag. And that's me. Now, we don't live in a society that burns books, but I was curious, how prevalent is it for books to be banned? So I talked with James LaRue, the director of the Office for Intellectual Freedom at the American Library Association. He says local libraries are supposed to report to the American Library Association every time someone asks for a book to be removed from the shelves. Officially, they get about 360 challenges a year. But James LaRue says he knows that the vast majority of libraries do not report the challenges. So he estimates they could actually be in the thousands. But if a challenge does make it all the way up to him... We would hand you the form that says, did you read the whole thing? What specifically concerns you about it? Um, Can you recommend other books from a different perspective that you think we should have to balance this? And then that request for reconsideration goes to typically a committee. We put together a group of people to say, read the whole thing, look at the selection policy and say, should we keep this book? Does it fit? Is it a good match? And when that sort of thoughtful conversation takes place, typically the committee will say, no, the book's okay. Um, Very few books are in fact dangerous. As I often say, you can look at the world today and say there are many problems, but reading too much is not one of them. So which books get challenged the most? He says for the most part, that depends on the year. So, for instance, if I go back to 2015, nine of the top ten most frequently challenged books were about diverse populations, by or about diverse populations. So LGBT, particular focus on transgendered. Or it might be um, people who fell into the minority group of uh, Muslim. So anything that gave a positive portrayal of Muslims, you know, got lots of pushback. Jonathan Eller is the director of the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies at Indiana University. And he says book banning was very much on Bradbury's mind when he wrote Fahrenheit 451 in the early 1950s on the eve of the McCarthy hearings. Ray Bradbury felt that the uh, 
ban on books or the censorship of books would probably start with supernatural literature and fantasy. And so he started to write a series of about a half a dozen stories in the late 40s that um, touched on the issue of the banning of, uh, of supernatural fiction or the burning of supernatural fiction. Did I read that he was descended from Mary Bradbury, who's one of the people in the Salem Witch Trials? Oh, yes. He was uh, Mary Bradbury was his direct ancestor. She was tried, of course, in the early 1690s, uh, found guilty of taking on spectral forms. I think it uh, was the form of a wild boar someone accused her of. She was found guilty and sentenced to die. But over time, um, the the, uh, colonial government changed and she was spared. But Ray Bradbury's initial spark of inspiration for Fahrenheit 451 came from a personal experience. One night... He was walking with a friend in Los Angeles, and a policeman stopped and questioned them, because apparently it was strange to just be walking at night in Los Angeles. Bradbury was so annoyed, he wrote a short story called The Pedestrian, which took place in a totalitarian future where people were so distracted by technology they didn't even bother going out of their houses and take a walk. And that short story eventually evolved into the world of Fahrenheit 451, where technology is so all-consuming and distracting people don't even read books anymore. And one of the most endearing details about Fahrenheit 451 is that Bradbury wrote the novel on a coin-operated typewriter at his local library. He later would jokingly refer to it as his dime novel. When it was done, he called the fire department to ask what temperature a book would burn. They told him 451 degrees, and that's how he got the title. When it was finally published in 1953, Fahrenheit 451 was considered a success, critically and commercially. But it was not seen as an instant classic. For a long time, other Ray Bradbury books, like The Martian Chronicles, were much more popular. But by the 80s and 90s, as we're dealing with these uh, technological marvels, and we have the challenge of uh, preserving unmediated literature and great ideas, people began to see that to, uh, to remind us all that literacy is important then Fahrenheit began to become a staple in schools. Now, remember when James LaRue of the American Library Association said that different books get challenged every year depending on what's controversial? Well, there are some books that people try to ban every year, decade after decade. And Fahrenheit 451 is one of those books. You know, the challenges go everything from language. So someone will say there is profanity in this book. Well, there's profanity in many books, and so often it winds up being a cover for what the real issue is. So in this case, the idea is that uh, for Fahrenheit 451, that censorship is somehow not a good thing when how dare someone challenge the authority of the government or, by extension, the parent to say, we don't want our children to read this. And if you think that is ironic, people trying to ban a book about burning books, it gets worse. For a while, there was an edited version of Fahrenheit 451 circulated in schools. Words that may be deemed offensive, like hell and damn, had been removed. When Bradbury found out about this, he was mad. He got the original text reinstated and wrote a new coda that is still in every copy of Fahrenheit 451. Again, Jonathan Eller. It's a coda in which he says at the end, I will not go gently onto a shelf, degutted to become a non-book. And here is Ray Bradbury himself. I get letters from teachers all the time saying uh, my books have been banned temporarily. I said, don't worry about it. Put them back on the shelves. 
and they they come in and find them on the shelves again and you say gee how'd they get back on there you know and you keep putting them back and they keep taking them off and you finally win you know mm -hmm. but be very quiet about it and don't ask for my help because if i come to your um town to help you i'm a big frog in a small puddle and they're going to hate me all of them all the people so you can't ask me to interfere you do the job you're the librarian you're the teacher stand firm and you'll win and they always do now part of what helped fahrenheit 451 endure was the way that it got adapted it's been turned into a graphic novel movies a play now don't maybe use this there have been radio drama adaptations on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, that's one way to get an audience at the end of a flamethrower. Phil Nichols teaches TV and film at the University of Wolverhampton in the UK. His specialty are media adaptations of Ray Bradbury's work. They've all been so different and so playful. And strangely enough, the first film adaptation of Fahrenheit 451 did not come from Hollywood. The 1966 film was directed by Francois Truffaut. It's a very strange film. It's a combination of French New Wave filmmaking and an American story. And it was shot in England and it was directed by a director who didn't speak a word of English, even though the film was made in English. And the actor playing Montag had a thick Austrian accent. We burn them to ashes and then burn the ashes. That's our official motto. You don't like books then? Books are just so much rubbish. They have no interest. The writer Neil Gaiman was never a big fan of that movie, and he was particularly disturbed by the ending. Now, to some extent, the ending of the movie is similar to the book. Montag quits the fire department, and he joins the resistance, where he discovers the, quote, book people, who invented a really ingenious way to preserve books. Each of them chooses a book to memorize. I think in the book, you can almost hear the trumpets as People are introduced as you realize that, yes, you can destroy a book, but you cannot destroy the content of the book. And as long as some books are people, the books are inside us and we can bring them out again. You know, the return to the oral tradition is wonderful. In the film, nobody is telling the content of their book to another person. And I think that is the thing that makes it seem like madness, like a waste of time, like pointless. They're all on their own, not making eye contact with each other, mumbling their stories, mumbling their books that they've remembered. Ray Bradbury always had mixed feelings about the Truffaut film. But he wrote a play in the 1970s that incorporated a lot of ideas that Truffaut had invented for the film into Bradbury's new theatrical version of Fahrenheit 451. But the biggest change that Bradbury made was something brand new that did not come from the Truffaut film. He took the character of Captain Beatty, who had been sort of a two-dimensional villain in the book, and made him more of an anti-hero. Jonathan Eller says... This actually came from Bradbury's own insecurities as a writer. He always worried the most about writing character. He knew that he had very interesting ideas based on the basic fears and hopes and aspirations and terrors and loves of, of human beings. But uh, sometimes he, he had to work very hard to develop characters. 
And all the work that Ray Bradbury did on the character of Captain Beatty struck a chord with Julia Wilhelm. In the spring of 2018, she was a senior at McKinney Boyd High School outside Dallas. And when she learned that her drama teacher was going to put on the play of Fahrenheit 451. I read the script, and the character that I really wanted to play was Beatty. And because it was the most complex and contradictory character in the show, kind of like a Aaron Burr, like a Judas, you know. (laughs) Now, Jonathan Pitzer is Julia's drama teacher. And in this case, he decided not to do traditional auditions. He interviewed the kids to find out how deeply they had thought about Fahrenheit 451. And he was pretty blown away when he talked with Julia. She um, came with notes, and she had like a PowerPoint, and she had drawings of the characters, and she had really put in the time for Captain Beatty. And I told her, I said, you know, you know that's a man, right? And she said, yeah, but it doesn't have to be. That's the part I want. Yeah, and I would say it like it's something that you've heard said every single day when you're at the firehouse or something. Yeah. Kind of like if you're in my class, you hear every day is an audition all the time and stuff. Yeah. Like it's something that you hear babies say all the time. And when Jonathan Pitzer decided to put on Fahrenheit 451 at McKinney Boyd High School, he thought the kids would relate to the show because a lot of it is about technology. I mean, Bradbury was really prescient. The characters walk around with devices in their ears called seashells, which look remarkably like Bluetooth earbuds. Everybody has wall-size, flat-screen TVs, even interactive television. And the HBO movie adaptation from 2018 featured all that stuff pretty heavily. Welcome, natives, and everybody at home watching on the nine. Look what we found hiding in your beautiful Michael B. Jordan played Montag as a social media star who burns books on live simulcasts with emojis of fire and smiley faces floating up around him. Damn, it's a pleasure to burn. Everybody watching at home with a nine, are you ready? And the teenage kids at McKinney Boyd High School did relate to the technology aspect of the play. But something else spoke to them, something that they deal with on a more regular basis. It's the question of how do you fight dangerous ideas in a country that guarantees freedom of speech? In Fahrenheit 451, those are two different issues. The books, on paper, contain all the ideas. The technology is full of empty distractions. But in the real world, these days, technology is the battleground for offensive ideas. Once, Montag, we were a small country, but then we grew. This is Julie Wilhelm performing as Captain Beatty. And by the millions, they poured in upon us. And finally, you have 300 million doctors, lawyers, Baptists, block-headed Swedes, beer-fat Germans. Blacks don't like little black Sambo? Burn it. White people hate Uncle Tom's cabin? Burn it. The Jews hate Fagin and Oliver Twist? Burn Fagin. Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice? Women's Lib hates that. Into the furnace. More comic books, more gossip, plenty of facts, but... No meaning. And there you have it, Montag. Lecture's over. Fahrenheit 451 has grown beyond being just a book. It's an idea. It's a living document that's taken on a life of its own. Ideas are resilient, especially good ideas. They can be more powerful than any author, book, movie, or play. Again, the novelist Alice Hoffman. You know, I think it's iconic because 
every generation has the fears that are in Fahrenheit 451. How do we continue to be people who care about books and care about life and care about the truth? And I also think right now there's this sense of the news can be manipulated, which it it is manipulated in Fahrenheit 451, and that books can be viewed as dangerous, the truth can be viewed as dangerous, and there's kind of a mob mentality, and I feel like this book should be on every, every reading list. That story was produced by Eric Malinsky, whose podcast about fantasy and science fiction is called Imaginary Worlds. Our American Icon series is made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Coming up... David was so uh, diverse in his tastes and styles, and even his vocal styles are so different. He has at least six different voices he uses. David Bowie's producer tries to distill a 50-year career in a 15-minute montage. It took me about um, easily two months. You'll hear why. Tony Visconti, next in Studio 360. Ground control to major tongues. Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, offering a language program that uses interactive dialogue and speech recognition technology to teach a new language, like Spanish, French, or Italian. Babbel is available in the App Store or online at babbel.com. Studio 360. Five years ago, David Bowie was still alive, and an exhibition called David Bowie Is opened at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. It has been touring the world since, and right now, until July 15th, it's making its final stand in New York City at the Brooklyn Museum. It is fabulous. There are more than 400 pieces in the exhibition. His diary entries, handwritten lyrics musical instruments, artwork, and, of course, lots of costumes. But nothing, really, is more striking than the sheer breadth and depth of David Bowie's music, which is also on audio display. Visitors get headphones that play a montage of David Bowie songs as they move through the exhibit. And that montage was created by Bowie's longtime producer and collaborator, Tony Visconti. Initially, I was asked to do just three songs and make it about three minutes long. And I don't know, something just came over me, and I realized that uh, I couldn't decide on three songs. So the three songs evolved into 49 songs. But turning 49 songs by such a shapeshifter like Bowie into a cohesive medley was not easy. David was so uh, diverse in his tastes and styles, and even his vocal styles are so different. He has at least six different voices he uses. So it took me about um, easily two months. You'll hear why. 
To make this montage work for the museum exhibit, Visconti had to hunt down all the tapes from the original recording sessions and then pull the songs apart, remixing them, isolating vocal tracks, changing tempos and keys until the whole thing sounded of a piece. Our producer Tommy Bazarian met Tony at his studio in Manhattan. They sat down at his mixing console and Tony explained how the montage was constructed. So I thought, what's the best way to start? And that would be with Space Oddity. I used it as a backdrop for little teasers of other things he had done. I threw in uh, Fame. The guitar lick to The Man Who Sold the World. Ziggy Stardust. Uh, Golden Years. Boys keep swinging. Ground control to major tones. Seven. Six. Ground control to major Space Oddity was his first hit. Controversial hit because I told him at the time, it's a lovely song, but it's a gimmick. And now it's just such an anthem. It represents anything about outer space. This is ground control to major tongue. You've really made the grave. And now you really think. Oh, you really to do this, I had to change tempos to match other songs, change the key sometimes. I'd have to leave a vocal out, or I'd have to put a, a vocal from another section of the song in that spot to make more sense of the transition. So for instance, we're about to transition into uh, Life on Mars. It's on America's brow. Mickey Mouse has grown up the For Life on Mars, I did something interesting. I did uh, look back in anger from Lodger. I used as the backing vocals. Here are the, those vocals isolated. I had to change the pitch of those and the timing slightly to, to go in there. I don't know how it happened, but by the end of doing those backing vocals, we were sounding like uh, uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon. It wasn't intentional, but we just uh, loved those two people. We loved that sound from Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, you know. The end of Life on Mars had strings 
and I had to fade it out quickly to get into Lady Grinning Soul, so I wrote a little string interval to glue them together. It was never on the original record. But I realized it was a good motif, so I, I carried on playing the strings over Lady Grinning Soul. I'll, I'll just play what the strings sound like. Should have been there in the first place, I think. <laughs> Here's uh, I'm Afraid of Americans, which I mixed young Americans with. Because they both had Americans, they're both similar in ideas. So. So let's see, where do we go after this? This is the uh, end of five years. Now you hear that little synthesized sound underneath David's vocal. That's from Heroes, and it's a song called V2 Schneider. So it's actually the intro of V2 Schneider that I'm using as just a, a background. He flexes like a whore, falls wanking to the floor. His trick is you and me, boy. So now that we're headed towards the finale of the, the mashup, uh, I'm doing harder cuts. Really like, you know, you'd hear on, in, a, in a nightclub uh, DJ cuts. I temporarily go into the twilight zone <laughs> at the end of Let's Dance. Ashes to ash and fun to fuck it. 
And uh, the whole ending is based on the song Heroes. But again, there's about 10 elements of different songs. Loving the Alien. Watch That Man. Sound and Vision. Going into 1984. backing vocals of Sound and Vision which was my ex-wife Mary Hopkin and Brian Eno going do-do-do-do-do-do Absolute Beginner's vocal I had to chop up to make it fit to the tempo of Heroes ending now, I had to fade out the band. We can be heroes. And just leave David's uh, vocals remaining. We can be heroes forever and ever. This is the uh, kind of anticlimax. David Bowie had no part in this. He didn't want to have any part in it. But it was turning out so good. We were making The Next Day at the time. And uh, he came into this room and I said, just let me play two minutes of it to you. And he says, oh, no, I don't want to hear it. I said, you don't have to say you like it or not. And I played it to him. And he liked it a lot. And... uh, He said, great, carry on, you know, finish it. It was really, uh, it was wonderful to work with this. Like, I I, I would often tear up, honestly, because this is intertwined with my life, too. You know, I was there at the beginning, and I was right there at the end. Ground control to major tongues. David Bowie's producer, Tony Visconti. To hear the mashup in its entirety, you'll have to go see David Bowie Is at the Brooklyn Museum. You've got until July 15th. Tommy Bazarian produced our story. Coming up... A heist movie that's about a lot more than the loot. It wasn't just that they wanted the money and they they imagined they were going to be kind of riding off into the sunset with bags of cash. They talked about this need to be special. The director of the new movie American Animals, Barton Layton, on what bros will do for attention. Next in Studio 360. 
Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, a language app that teaches real-life conversations in a new language, like Spanish, French, or German. Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons are available in the App Store or online at babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L, dot com. Studio 360. Bart Layton has had a successful career as a London-based producer of unscripted nonfiction shows for TV in the UK and the US. Documentary series like Locked Up Abroad, which ran on the National Geographic channel. I was now in the worst place in South America. If it means killing somebody, then that's the attitude that you have to have. You know the form, true crime stories combining interviews with dramatic reenactments. Layton's debut as a feature-length documentary director a few years ago was a film called The Imposter, which was a more ambitious and aggressive hybrid of documentary and narrative filmmaking. It's a true story about a young French con artist who had posed as a boy who disappeared from Texas. I bought product to color my hair totally blonde, took big sunglasses, I took a hat, I took a scarf, I took a glove. I thought that if she couldn't see me, then she wouldn't be able to say I'm not a brother. Now, Bart Layton has found another fascinating real-life story set in middle America for his new film. The movie is called American Animals. I'm going to say this one time and one time only. You're either in or you're out. How can I tell you if I'm in or I'm out without you telling me the first thing about what I might be in or out of? This would be something dangerous and very exciting. It's also about young criminals and the blur between various lines of fiction and reality, but it is not a documentary. Interspersed with the fictionalized version of the events, the actual real people the movie is based on appear as well. Sometimes they even interact with the actors who depict them. Bart Layton is here to talk about it. Welcome to Studio 360. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So describe what American Animals is about. The plot is about a group of young men from Lexington, Kentucky. One of them goes to a university, one of the oldest liberal arts colleges in uh, in the U.S., and discovers that his library has a special collections room. And in that room is the most valuable books on the planet, potentially, in particular the Birds of America by John James Audubon, which I think to this date is still valued in the tens of millions. And they begin to wonder if they could plan the perfect robbery. Yeah. And what starts as a sort of fantasy, as a kind of game, they arrive at a place where they kind of realize that actually they could probably do it and they could probably get away with it. And um, like all good heist movies, it doesn't go entirely to plan. <laughs> when you heard about this story, what made it a good subject for a Bart Layton film. (laughs) You know, I thought it was a fun story to begin with. I thought it was amazing that a group of seemingly well-educated young men from good families and good homes would end up attempting something like this. That was intriguing. I didn't know what could have motivated them, given that it seemed so unlikely they could ever have thought they'd get away with it. I decided to make contact with them. Yes. It was the things that they wrote to me and that made me think, okay, this is a story that has to be told because it wasn't just that they wanted the money 
and they they imagined they were going to be kind of riding off into the sunset with bags of cash. They talked about this need to be special. Right. And, you know, as a dramatist, you pick up any screenplay book and the first thing it will say is, you know, establish your character and establish his or her problem. What do they want? What do they want? Yeah. And in this case, you know, this guy's problem was that he didn't have a problem. <laughs> yes. And he sets out yeah. to kind of manufacture one. And that just seemed like such a extraordinary and kind of honest starting point. And it also felt like it spoke to something about not just this generation, but maybe a lot of them, you know, and this idea that we're all inhabiting a culture where we're told that we have to be special. Right. You know, most of us, as we as we enter adulthood, we sort of, you know, we, we realize that probably we're not going to be remarkable and um, we're going to be, you know, pretty ordinary like everyone else. And but But I don't think that was ever quite as problematic as it is these days. You know, I don't think there was quite as much pressure on people, particularly young people, to be kind of noteworthy, you know, to leave a mark on the world. Right. Were you thinking of it uh, at first as a documentary or did you, out of the, as soon as you found out about it, thinking, no, I, I want to make a scripted feature out of this? I kind of come from the place of thinking, you know, what is the best way of telling this story? And um, with this movie, you get the real people and you get this really unusual experience because I think you have a an emotional connection because of the inclusion of the real people that, you know, you don't have in, in a lot of straight kind of narrative films. Right. And so you get in touch with these guys. Do you then write the screenplay based on what they told you? Yeah, exactly. That's how it went. And oftentimes, you know, two of them would remember the same incident in a quite a different way. Indeed. I want to talk about one particular uh, sequence in American Animals that is one of my favorites of among many. It's when Warren and Spencer are first discussing the heist. I'm pretty sure he told me about it at Rich's party. I remember it being cold. I think I told him about it in the car. Maybe November. It was cold. They, they both remembered the same conversation happening differently, you know, happening in different locations. So as a dramatist, you know, you can either go, oh, well, I'll just choose the one that is either going to be most cinematic or if you're a producer, the one that's going to be cheapest to shoot or, right. you know what I mean? You you, yep. you kind of, but I actually thought there's something really kind of important in that idea of these sort of conflicting memories. And so what I decided to do was to shoot the same conversation happening in the two different locations. And it is absolutely seamless. Here's a clip of the first part where the actors playing Warren Spencer are smoking a joint in the car. I still don't understand how a book could be worth $12 million. It's like if Picasso had a bunch of his paintings in a book. The purpose of the joint, in a way, is that they pass it between each other and, and they pass it between the locations. So yeah. Warren may pass it to Spencer in the car and Spencer takes hold of it at the party. More like a secure room with glass cases and stuff. So it just helps this sort of seamless transition between uh, one place and another. The sequence ends with this sort of very meta moment. Spencer and Warren uh, pull up to a convenience store. So... Spencer gets out of the car and we follow him as he goes into the convenience store and the camera pans back to Warren, who's left sitting in the car. And when we pan back round to him, Warren, 
the actor, played by Evan Peters, is sitting in the car next to the real Warren. And the actor, Warren, asks the guy who he's playing in the movie. So this is how you remember it? Not exactly. But if this is how Spencer remembers it, then let's go with it. I don't think I've ever seen that before, right? A, a real-life person <laughs> I hope not, yeah. talking to the actor playing him. I, I hope not. I mean, I love the idea that, you know, we are basically in a scene from Spencer's memory right, in right. which Warren is saying, this is not how I remembered it. You know, so if it's how Spencer remembers it, then fine, let's just go with that version kind of thing. It's, it's a terrific film, and people should go see it. As I used to say, it's a candy mint and a breath mint. It's a great, thrilling heist movie and this interesting postmodern meditation on on reality and fiction. It's, it's really good. <laughs> I've never heard a, that. A candy mint and a breath mint. I'll take that. You can hear a longer version of that conversation on our podcast stream, which you ought to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Certs is a candy mint. Certs is a breath mint. Stop. You're both right. New Certs is two mints in one. And that is it for this week's show. Before we go, I just wanted to remind you to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. You can also tell us at either place what you think of Studio 360. As our listeners Danielle Shard and Stefan D.W. did recently, Danielle liked our Mother's Day show. I was removing and scraping wallpaper from a bathroom, and your show made the ordeal much more bearable. And Stefan, as he prepared to listen to our show featuring the Muppets and Angelique Kidjo's Talking Heads cover, said, I listen to Studio 360 while ironing my shirts. I haven't been this excited about doing laundry in a long time. Thanks, Stefan and Daniel. Glad we could provide the soundtrack for your drudgery. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Even his vocal styles are so different. He has at least six different voices he uses. Thank you very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Becoming a Floridian was a really difficult transition for me. The writer Lauren Groff on the strange creative seduction of her adopted state. I still, even now, 12 years later, wake up thinking, oh my gosh, this is my life. I live in Florida. When life gives you oranges, make orange juice. Art about the Sunshine State next time on Studio 360.